Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 5th of September 2021, 11 o'clock service. Katie Loughman speaking in the series, How the Bible Presents the Church, the People of God. And uh, I haven't seen some of you for a bit of a little while. And it's, there were so many people here at 9.30 as well, and more of those people that I haven't seen for quite a while as well. And there were so many children here. And what was fantastic and is fantastic now is to be together, praising God together, and to see those children worshipping God in their own way in their children's groups earlier on. And we remember also those people who are less active and mobile than they used to be, who can't come to church at the moment, but they're with us in spirit via CD or YouTube. So they're, of course, still, still part of our fellowship, even though they're not right here with us. So this is our church, God's people here in New Malden. And we're celebrating the fact that we can meet together again like this within this new sermon series, as Stephen said, all about the church. What does the Bible say about the church? What is the church according to the Bible? And where did it come from? So today I'm going to be speaking about the church as God's people and the long history that that gives us rooted in the Old Testament. But before we look back, let's start here. We are the church. But of course, it's not only us. It's all of God's people all over the world. Because of course, we all know that the church is not really the building. It's the people, God's people. But God is infinite and he's not limited by time. So the church includes all of God's people throughout history. And here are some members of Christchurch from the past. And these people are still praising God with him in his very presence. And we join with them, praising God together. And some of those people are commemorated in our stained glass windows. But beyond Christchurch, going back even more centuries, here are some well-known people from the, the book which the older children were given this morning. Uh, everyone a child should know. So this is what the older children got given. It's a nice picture book. So we've got, uh, in that picture, we've got Fanny Crosby, William and Catherine Booth, Rosa Parks, John Knox. How many of those do you know, I wonder? Fanny Crosby was new to me. She was a hymn writer and she was also blind and well known for her sort of bravery despite her difficulties. There you go. So this is the family that we all belong to. Millions of people all over the world and throughout time praising God together. And then Hebrews 11 goes even further back. It lists some of the heroes of the Old Testament. Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Sarah, Gideon, Samson, David. They form a long line leading up to the Christians of the New Testament. They're a cloud of witnesses to God's promises, worshipping him alongside us here. So this is our church, God's family, Christians throughout the world and throughout time. God's family was started when he first created Adam and Eve. They were his people and he was their God. And then it was reiterated in covenants with Noah, Abraham, 
Moses, David, and again and again throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's people broadly meant the children of Israel, that one genetic family. But the good news in the New Testament is that Jesus opens the doors to include anyone who will come to him and call him Father. And that's the church that we belong to. In a way, those of us who are not Jews are symbolised by the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Philip heard him reading the book of Isaiah and he used it to start as a starting point to lead that man to Jesus. For the eunuch, the obvious next step was to get baptised at the first opportunity. So that's what they did. He believed in Jesus and then he was baptised into God's family, the worldwide church. Acts chapter 8 tells us that he was reading from Isaiah 53. You can see the words on the, in the picture there, led like a, like a sheep is led to the slaughter. And this chapter describes a servant of God who bears the sins of the world and is despised and rejected. He suffers a sacrificial death and then he comes back to life and he's honoured as a king. This suffering servant, the New Testament tells us, is Jesus. Once a suffering servant is restored to life, the next chapter, Isaiah 54, tells us that Israel will be restored. God's people over their history had been enslaved, defeated, exiled and occupied. But now they'll live in peace under God's love and protection. Even if the mountains may shake, God's unfailing love will never shake. The following chapter, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 55 continues the theme of restoration and it tells us how creation will be restored. Mountains and hills will burst into song and the trees of the field will clap their hands like in that lovely song. All of creation will be praising God as an everlasting sign of God's reign. Then chapter 56, which was our reading, rounds off that section with the passage that we had and it talks about a wider restoration. It addresses two groups of people who back in Deuteronomy chapter 23 they were explicitly excluded from God's covenant with his people and that was eunuchs and foreigners. After the sacrifice of the suffering servant both of these groups if they worship God will be able to be part of the covenant. Verse 4 mentions the keeping of the Sabbath which for the Jews was not just a commandment but it was a sign of the covenant. Now God is inviting these excluded groups to be full members of his covenant people. So let's fast forward to Acts chapter 8. We meet the Ethiopian eunuch riding in his chariot. And what we see is someone who, for two reasons, is excluded from God's covenant with his people. He's a eunuch and he's a foreigner. But Philip is able to explain to him that Jesus the suffering servant, by his life and his sacrifice and his resurrection, has opened up the covenant to anyone who will serve the Lord. So to then go on and baptise the man is both logical and shocking. 
I like this picture particularly because Philip's got his arm around the Ethiopian and he's drawing him into the church. And when Philip baptised him, he was acting out those verses at the end of our reading, Luke, uh, Isaiah 56, 7 and 8. Just as God gathered the exiles of Israel, he will gather still others too. And God's house will be a house of prayer for all nations. What a wonderful fulfilment of that prophecy Philip's action was. And those others that God gathered throughout the New Testament, they became the church, the expanded version of God's people. And we're in the same position as that Ethiopian man. If we're not Jews, we're foreigners, excluded from the original covenant. But because of Jesus, we're invited in. And if we are Jews, we still need to come to Jesus to be part of this new relationship. Isaiah tells us that if we believe in Jesus and we worship him and serve him, there's a place for us among God's people. All the Christians in the New Testament worked really hard to bring that to fulfilment, living out and demonstrating God's plan to all kinds of foreigners and outcasts. And we're so blessed to be living in the continued fulfilment of that prophecy. So what does this mean for the church in New Malden? We recognise our identity as a tiny part of God's people, both in the world and in time. And how do we live it out? Well, firstly, what does it say in Isaiah 56? Verse 1. Maintain justice and do what's right. Maintaining justice applies to the little things as well as the big things. We all know when something's not fair, but we also have a temptation to bend the rules if it gives us an advantage. How can you maintain justice in your everyday life? And your dealings with other people. Maintaining justice Fairness, equality, is a factor in nearly everything we do. And it's one of the things that God requires of us. Chapter 56 asks for a commitment to God, to worship him and to serve him. And it also puts a lot of emphasis on the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath as a sacred day dedicated to God. And that was one of the signs of the covenant as well as a Ten Commandment. But it's also, it made God's people different in a noticeable way. Our Sundays are still special, but nowadays we don't emphasise the, sab the Sabbath aspect of it. We still have it in the Ten Commandments, but it's not a covenant responsibility. One of, we've got some friends who live in a quite touristy village in Dorset, and uh, there's a place in the middle of the village where there's lots of little shops with different workshops in them and different crafty shops for the tourists. And one of those shops is a pottery. And on a Sunday, all of the shops are open except for the pottery. And that's because the potter is a Christian and he goes to church and he keeps Sunday special. And that closed shop in that square of all the other open shops is a really good witness to what he thinks is important his priorities. But as Christians, it's not just Sunday, is it? We give our whole lives to God. 
So every day is dedicated to him. Because ours is not a once a week faith. We don't only meet God when we come to church on Sundays, although this is a really brilliant place to meet him, especially in the communion service. But the Holy Spirit is in our hearts, so we carry God's presence with us the whole time. And he's around us in the world too, so we're with him all the time. And that's one difference between church and temple. In Old Testament times, God was particularly present in the temple, so that's where they had to go. But with God living in our hearts right now, that's why we can say that we are the church in a way that temple goers never could. Isaiah 56 verse 1 says, Salvation is close at hand. But for us, since Jesus, salvation is here. So Jesus updates that to say, the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. So close, he also says, that the kingdom of heaven is within us. But both Isaiah and Jesus draw the same conclusion. Therefore, stop what you're doing and love God and serve him. Maintain justice and do the right thing because God's kingdom is coming and it's almost here. So that's what Isaiah 56 tells us. Another way that we can express our identity as God's church is by living out that openness that Jesus offers. Who are the eunuchs and the foreigners of today? Who do we see being oppressed by society and overlooked by the church? That question is hard to answer because by definition, we're trying to see someone that society has blinded us to. We need to take off the blinkers of prejudice and unconscious bias and look around with the eyes of Jesus. He went out of his way to meet people who were usually avoided and shunned. He insisted on letting all sorts of people approach him, when, even when other people tried to usher them out of the way. Blind men, children prostitutes. He even sat by a well in the heat of the day to meet a woman coming alone to fetch water. Who do we airbrush out of society? Who do we pass by on the other side, perhaps with a polite nod, but nothing more? Where do we need to sit to meet the people who most need Jesus? I guess each one of us might have a different answer to those questions depending on what we do and who we mix with, but it's a mission for every single one of us. The church is aware of this calling and it's done a lot in the past to bring marginalised people into its heart, whether that's been slaves or orphans or more recently divorced people, single parents, gay people. We and other churches are making efforts to reach out to people who are homeless, people with mental health problems, refugees. But the job is never done because society changes all the time. And with each change, different people are overlooked. Our job as Christians is to keep our radar focused so that we're not blinded to who might need seeking out, 
who might need that extra bit of encouragement to come to church or turn to Jesus so that we can make them feel welcome without judging. One group who've been complaining a lot recently about being excluded is transsexual people. There's a lot of debate in the media about where they can and can't go, whether that's sports competitions or public loos, and I don't know how soon those problems will be solved. But the most important thing for us is that they're welcome in church. Transsexuals are used to being excluded and many of them have suffered a lot of abuse so they can make themselves difficult to find. But we can engage with them and their issues on social media. And when we do, it's important to make sure that we truly represent the opening up of God's covenant, his covenant love to all people. Because when we're online, whatever we say and whatever we post, we're still the church. And everything that we post needs to represent God's love for his people and God's inclusion of everybody into those people. Jesus went to where people were, where they were suffering, and he sat with them there, even if that meant on the edge of a well on a boiling hot day. And he listened to their story, and he told them about his love for them, and he demonstrated that too. The main way that he does that today is through us. Isaiah 56 verse 3 contains these sad words, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. But God wants no one to feel that way because it's not true. Instead, we want them to say with the Ethiopian, why shouldn't I be baptised? And then like him, to go on their way rejoicing. So what is the church, according to the Bible? It's God's people. And who are God's people? Potentially everybody. And particularly anyone who feels overlooked or excluded by religion or by society. God wants to welcome them in, to love and serve him. Because he is the father of every single one of us. And we are his church. <laughs>